From bureaus worldwide, this is CNA 938 World Report. I'm Chris Jones in London. And I'm Benji Heyer in Washington, D.C., at the end of the first full day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For nearly 24 hours now, Russian armed forces have pummeled the country, launching attacks by air, land and sea. Martial law was declared by Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky as Russian aircraft bombarded an airfield just outside Kiev and attacked command and control systems across the country. The crippled nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, the scene in 1986, of the world's worst ever nuclear accident is now under Russian control. In the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, civilians are spending the night in underground stations in a bid to secure themselves against the threat of airstrikes. President Zelensky accused Russia of severing itself from the civilian world. And President Biden and other Western leaders took immediate steps to sanction the Kremlin and wealthy Russians who support it. We have reporting ahead on the crisis from Russia, Brussels, London, Hungary, India, Japan and China. But we begin with our US bureau chief, Simon Marks. Ukraine today began to witness what just 24 hours ago the Biden administration was still calling the worst-case scenario. The sound of a Russian fighter jet screaming over a residential area, dropping ordnance and terrifying the family recording the scene. And just outside the capital, Kiev, more horrifying moments. Multiple Russian combat helicopters attacking the Antonov airport, 15 minutes drive from the ring road encircling the Ukrainian capital. This is, of course, exactly what the White House feared, a cooked-up pretext for a Russian invasion, then aerial bombardment of the country accompanied by a cyber attack. The U.S. believes a major ground offensive will follow to, in the words of Vladimir Putin, demilitarize Ukraine. And the Russian leader delivered a direct threat to Washington and its NATO allies. Don't even think about coming after me. Modern Russia is still one of the most powerful nuclear powers in the world. No one should be in any doubt. A direct attack on our country will lead to defeat and terrible consequences for any potential aggressor. Is he threatening a nuclear strike? I have no idea what he's threatening. I know what he has done. Speaking at the White House after a day closeted with his national security team and engaged with G7 leaders, the president accused Vladimir Putin of unprovoked, unjustified aggression. For weeks, we have been warning that this would happen. And now it's unfolding largely as we predicted. We've been transparent with the world. We've shared declassified evidence about Russia's plans and cyber attacks and false pretexts so that there could be no confusion or cover-up about what Putin was doing. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. President Biden announced sanctions that he says will cripple Russia's economy. The U.S. Treasury targeting banks with more than a trillion U.S. dollars in assets. He put debt and equity restrictions on a host of economic sectors in Russia, including mining, metals, energy and transportation. He put export controls in place on the Russian tech industry and sanctioned key members of the Russian elite, including several families close to Vladimir Putin himself. But he notably did not sanction the Russian leader personally, saying that option was still on the table. 
Reporters wondered why any option, including barring Russian banks from the SWIFT interbank system, was being left in the president's back pocket. What more are you waiting for? Specifically, with the sanctions we've imposed exceed SWIFT. The sanctions we imposed exceed anything that's ever been done. The sanctions we imposed have generated two-thirds of the world joining us. They are profound sanctions. Let's have a conversation in another month or so to see if they're working. But Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev may not have another month. Russian forces look set to continue their offensive. And at no point did the president explicitly demand that Vladimir Putin withdraw his troops and their bombs and their bullets. There was no call from President Biden today for Vladimir Putin to do anything specific, even as the U.S. leader warned the Russians' ultimate plan may extend beyond Ukraine itself. He has much larger ambitions in Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. That's what this is about. And I think that his, uh, his ambitions uh, are completely contrary to the place where the rest of the world has arrived. The president insisted he hadn't underestimated his Russian rival. He said again there is no prospect of U.S. troops being deployed in Ukraine to defend its government and its people, and intimated that the survival of democracy in Kiev is now going to fall to Ukrainians themselves. I'm Simon Marks in Washington. In Ukraine, it's the middle of the night. For the meantime, at least Russia says it's achieved all its goals for its initial assault. There are reports overnight, though, of Ukrainian forces fighting back, even after President Vladimir Putin urged members of the Ukrainian army to lay down their arms. The Kremlin still insists it stands ready to hold negotiations with Ukraine on its neutral status, providing Kiev pledges not to host weapons on its territory. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, meanwhile, has sent out a plea to Russians, calling on those who have not yet lost their conscience to go out and protest against the war. That message has been heeded by many. Already thousands have been detained in anti-war demonstrations across Russia. The country's interior ministry has told citizens to refrain from unsanctioned protests, threatening arrests and citing COVID-19 measures on public gatherings. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was not able to attend, he remains imprisoned on what he claims are trumped-up political charges, but on Thursday spoke out against the invasion during a court hearing. So what is the feeling amongst Russians as they watch their army attack a neighbouring nation with whom they share a long and complicated history? Our correspondent Julia Chapman has been speaking with people in Rostov near the border with Ukraine. There was, of course, a lot of support for bringing in evacuees from eastern Ukraine. There was even high support, if you believe state pollsters, for the recognition of the uh, independence of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. According to Vitsyom, the state pollster, 73% of Russians approved of that move. But this is a very different step indeed. There are uh, regions of Ukraine being attacked by the Russian military. Uh, most Russians in the weeks leading up to this moment had told us they weren't interested in war. They did not want to see fighting break out between Russia and Ukraine, two countries which historically have been very, very close. Uh, there are people with family on both sides of the border. Undoubtedly, there are inextricable links between the two. And that is partly what is motivating President Vladimir Putin. But of course, if this spills out into a major conflict with high numbers of casualties, that is going to be very difficult for the Russian people to accept. Uh, but President Putin seems to have taken that into account for his calculations and dismissed it as being any kind of a deterrent. Julia Chapman on the Russian-Ukrainian border.
Coming up, all the reaction from the EU, the UK and Asia here on CNA 938 World Report will be back right after the break. Hi, I'm Yasmin Yonkers. Join me weekday mornings for a new take on the world around us. From 9am, I'll be with you for the Double Double X-Files. Her views, her stories. As an app designed to enable entrepreneurial women to grow, thrive and shine. If any part of the process goes wrong, you cannot ferment a tempe. It will not be successful. We understand, Joyce, as well, that women have a big role to play in Pongol. Women actually boil the rice to make the Pongol to celebrate the bountiful hours of fitness buddy. Okay. I think I've rejected them all. Yeah. I think I should be a bit more open now. <laughs> That's weekday mornings from 9 plus an encore at 8pm. The Double, Double X Files. Her views, her stories on CNA 938. Welcome back to CNA 938's World Report. I'm Chris Jones in London. And I'm Benji Heyer in Washington. EU leaders have been meeting in Brussels to discuss a package of massive sanctions against Russia. On Thursday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg strongly condemned what he called Russia's reckless attack on Ukraine, which puts at risk countless civilian lives. This is a grave breach of international law, he said, a serious threat to Euro-Atlantic security. Peace on our continent has been shattered. We now have war in Europe on a scale and of, a, and of a type we thought belonged to history. Our Brussels correspondent Rosie Birchard is in the EU Council for us. Rosie. Well, there was certainly a very tense mood as the leaders filed into talks tonight. All 27 EU leaders uh, have been in Brussels trying to work out what they do next, their next move in this very complex geopolitical chessboard. They are trying to anticipate the Russian President Vladimir Putin's uh, next move, but of course it would be a very brave analyst that would tell you what that might be. They will certainly be, uh, they've certainly been discussing sanctions. They're unveiling a a package of sanctions they say will be massive and unprecedented in their scale and scope. Now, let's not forget, uh, EU package of sanctions was already unveiled on Wednesday, and that included several key figures, including the Russian defence minister, the editor-in-chief of RT. But that, of course, appeared to not deter uh, Moscow in its actions one bit. So, of course, one of the key questions being raised, and we've heard that raised also in the United States, is will these sanctions make any difference? And the EU leaders are certainly hoping they will, but perhaps not quite in that in the short term. I think what's important to think about Europe in, in uh, slightly different to the United States or Asia, for example, is that Europe will be dealing potentially with a refugee crisis here. Lots of uh, several European countries share borders or are in close proximity to Ukraine, Poland, for example. We've heard from the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, that preparations have been underway to prepare for a potential influx of displaced people. Uh, And we also know the European Union is really trying to show that it will be supporting Ukraine. In the last two or three weeks, they did unveil a 1.2 billion euro support package. These leaders definitely don't have the magic answer to work out how they can achieve the goal they want, which of course, uh, would be to reverse this situation. They have called on uh, pre- the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, to reverse. Uh, we have no idea what will come next, frankly, but we know that EU leaders are doing their best to show a united front and to show their support to Ukraine and to its territorial integrity, which they say has been breached 
once again. And you spoke about what might come next. Difficult to predict, but uh, the discussions go on within Brussels. Are, are more summits scheduled, are more meetings scheduled in the hours and days to come? So on Friday... Uh, there will be a virtual summit of NATO leaders. So NATO is this defensive alliance that other major institution here in Brussels, its 30 members include big countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, but who is not among their ranks, crucially, is Ukraine. And that is very has very much been the question of the last few weeks. Russia, one of its key demands throughout this crisis is that Ukraine is effectively barred from ever joining the NATO alliance. That's something NATO allies said they would never agree to. That being said, there has been criticism today in Brussels um, as to whether NATO and the European Union should have given Ukraine a clearer path towards integration, towards joining these, uh, these key institutions. And that is something Ukraine has absolutely been calling for. We even heard this from several EU leaders tonight. We know, for example, the Lithuanian Prime Minister has made an appeal to grant Ukraine candidate status to the European Union. Rosie Burchard in Brussels. Over the English Channel, the UK's set out what it claims is the biggest sanctions package it's ever levelled against Russia in conjunction with its international allies. Holly Barrett reports from London. In the House of Commons, Boris Johnson set out new sanctions while emphasising the stark reality the European continent now faces. We now live in a continent where an expansionist power, deploying one of the world's most formidable military machines, is trying to redraw the map of Europe in blood and conquer an independent state by force of arms. And it's vital for the safety of every nation that Putin's squalid venture should ultimately fail. And so just days after announcing a first tranche of sanctions criticised by many lawmakers as too weak, more. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day and week by week. And we will of course use Britain's position in every international forum to condemn the onslaught against Ukraine. He says the largest and most severe package of economic sanctions that Russia has ever seen is being put in place. Among other measures, major Russian banks will have their assets frozen and be excluded from the UK financial system. Legislation will stop large Russian companies and the Russian state from raising finance or borrowing money via UK markets. Aeroflot airline will be banned from landing in the UK. Britain will stop Russian exports of high-tech items and oil refinery equipment. These trade sanctions will constrain Russia's military, industrial and technological capabilities for years to come. This was one of those rare days when the Commons was broadly on the same page, with support expressed for the government's moves across partisan divides. Labour leader Keir Starmer said the world must take a stand and support Ukraine. All of us who believe in democracy over dictatorship, in the rule of law over the reign of terror, in freedom over the jackboot of tyranny, must unite and take a stand. We must support the Ukrainian people in their fight and we must ensure that Putin fails. Outside Parliament, there were protests against Russian aggression and calls for the UK government to do more. Maria Montague from the Ukrainian Institute was among the demonstrators. 
I actually still just feel in shock. My friends and colleagues are all in Ukraine, not knowing what to do, training in first aid, learning how to take up arms. It's just absolutely unthinkable. The UK continues to stress that these latest sanctions it outlined today can be ratcheted up further on more companies, individuals, products and sectors. And the government says Boris Johnson is hoping to be able to convince allies in Europe to cut Russia out of the swift global payment system through which thousands of financial institutions around the world send money and information to each other. A spokesman says it's being discussed, but there are a range of views. That's diplomatic speak for it's causing a bit of a row. Ollie Barrett, London. Up next, a torrid day for the business world as the Ukraine crisis takes its toll on the stock market. And how Russia's actions are affecting major sporting fixtures and sponsorships. Find out after the latest news and traffic. You're listening to CNA 938 World Report. I'm Chris Jones in London. And I'm Benji Heyer in Washington, D.C. Time for a look at all the business news now on a predictably shaky day for the markets. Let's start in the U.S. with this roundup from Nick Harper. After four days of drops during the build-up of tensions and the threat of imminent invasion, Wall Street on Thursday turned things around. The Dow, earlier down more than 800 points, finished the day higher by 0.3%. Similarly, the S&P shook off early declines, finishing up 1.5%. And the Nasdaq shrugged off a morning drop of 3.5%, rallying to close 3.3% higher. US President Joe Biden imposed fresh sanctions on Russian banks and state-owned companies, pledging the new measures would have a lasting impact on President Putin's economic ambitions. He also said the sanctions would have little impact on US consumers, especially on the price of gasoline. Now let's take a look at the latest business news from across Europe and the headlines are mostly dominated by the rising price of oil because of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Before that, let's take a quick look at the markets and it's been a disastrous day's trading for our main indices. London's FTSE 100 finished the day down 3.88%, Paris's Cat Caron finished in the red 3.83% and Frankfurt's DAX also finished down by around 39 Now, the Russian assault on Ukraine is having a dramatic impact on multiple sectors of business all over the world. Let's start with Russian business and the impact of sanctions being placed upon them is being felt. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson described the fall in Russian shares and stocks as he addressed the House of Commons on Thursday. Russian investors are already delivering their verdict on the wisdom of Putin's actions. And so far today, Russian stocks are down by as much as 45%, wiping $250 billion from their value in the biggest one-day decline on record. Sparebank, Russia's biggest lender, is down by as much as 45%, and Gazprom down by as much as 39%, while the ruble has plummeted to record lows against the dollar. Meanwhile, oil prices hit the highest level in seven years following Russia's decision to invade Ukraine in what has been a volatile day for global markets. Laura Makinishawood reports. 
Oil prices are soaring, with Brent crude, the global oil benchmark, sitting above $105 a barrel for the first time since 2014. It's an impact, analysts say, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and one that will be felt in the pockets of the public. In the UK, petrol prices had already hit record highs this week of $1.99 a litre. But there are warnings from motoring groups that average prices could go up even further. The energy sector has also seen huge jumps in response to fears that new sanctions imposed on Russia could lead to a reduction in supplies. In the UK, where 5% of gas is imported from the country, there's already been a shift. British Gas reporting a jump in costs of 45%. Laura Makinishawood, London. But what real-world impact does all of that have on business? Well, Nalima Daruwala runs an Indian restaurant in London and says her business has already been massively impacted by rising inflation and this could make things even worse. Every little product has gone up, you know, the meat has gone up, vegetables have gone up, small products have gone up, transport costs have gone up. And that's your business update from Europe. Now, it's Thursday, so let's take a look at the latest going on in the world of sport. And there's been a breakthrough in US soccer after a long debate over equal pay for the women's team. But first, our sports correspondent Simon Watts spoke to Laura Macon Isherwood about the impact of the military Russian assault on Ukraine and the effect that might have on the Champions League final. Well, the final in May has been due to be held in St Petersburg, but the Ukraine-Russia crisis escalating at pace as it is, it's now considered highly unlikely that UEFA will go ahead with hosting the final in Russia on May the 28th. They've called an extraordinary meeting of their executive committee for Friday, where they will, quote, evaluate the situation and take all necessary decisions. Further communication will be made after the meeting. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has already said that there was no chance of holding football tournaments in Russia that invade sovereign countries. And of course, at this stage, there's still a very good chance that an English team, or maybe even two, might make it through to the final. Now, Wembley Stadium is likely to be ruled out as of hosting the final if it's moved elsewhere because it's the playoff weekend in England, so Wembley's already booked. UEFA have already postponed the Youth League last 16 time, which was scheduled to be played in the Ukraine capital on the 2nd of March. They've also come under scrutiny to end its ties to the Russian state energy company, Gazprom. Now, Gazprom renewed its Champions League sponsorship in May last year, when it also agreed to back the next two European championships. They've been involved with UEFA for 15 years now. At the time, UEFA described Gazprom as one of its most trusted, prominent partners and a leader in its field. But while most sponsorships are terminated, as a result of a company not being able to pay its bills or doing something that would result in the sponsorship coming into disrepute. In this situation, UEFA would still have to show cause to tear up the sponsorship contract. However, a bit of a precedent may have been set today because the German side Schalke have already taken action by removing the Russian state's logo from their shirts. Gazprom have been one of their main sponsors for the last 15 years now, stretching back to 2007. Meanwhile, there are also calls within Formula One for the Russian Grand Prix scheduled to take place in Sochi on the 25th of September to be removed from this, this year's sporting calendar. And Simon, it might have taken close to three years to reach a conclusion, but finally an agreement has been reached in the long-running equal pay dispute involving the US soccer teams. 
It's been described as a, a monumental step forward by the United States iconic forward Alex Morgan after the US Soccer Association pledged to equal pay for the men's and women's team across all competitions, including the World Cup. Now, that means US soccer will pay $22 million to the players now and a further $2 million to look after their post-career development and charitable aims. And it comes after uh, 28 members of the women's squad filed a discrimination lawsuit way back in March 2019. The USA won the Women's World Cup for the fourth time back in 2019, and they've claimed Olympic gold on no fewer than five occasions. Five senior members of USA's World Cup winning team initially filed a complaint against the National Federation for wage discrimination. That was back in 2016. The bid for equal pay, in which they sought $66 million in damages, was dismissed by courts in May 2020, which has led to this appeal. The US Soccer Federation offered identical contracts to its men's and women's national teams in this attempt to resolve its gender pay dispute back in September. The two-time World Cup winner Morgan says that she not only sees this as a win for our team, but for women in general. Simon, what's there with the sports? Still to come, more on the developing situation in Ukraine. We'll hear reaction from China and India after the latest headlines. Welcome back to CNA 938 World Report. I'm Chris Jones in London. And I'm Benji Hire in Washington, D.C. Our top story on the show today, war in Ukraine. Russia's waged a full-scale invasion with tanks rolling into the east of the country. Dozens of explosions have been heard nationwide, including in the capital, Kiev. Multiple casualties have been reported and thousands of evacuees have been seen fleeing violence. Lucy Hoff is in the town of Zahani, which lies just across the border in Hungary. She's been speaking to some of those escaping into the EU. Well, an extraordinarily difficult 24 hours for those who were woken on Thursday morning to the sound of sirens and explosions from Russian air missiles. One woman I spoke to woke up in exactly those circumstances. She packed a small rucksack and her and her boyfriend drove across the border uh, with Ukraine into Hungary, where we are on the eastern border. And uh, she is now trying to ascertain what she will do next. The future is very uncertain. There are tens of thousands more like her who will be uh, seeking to find refuge in the West, in Europe, in countries not uh, just Hungary, but also further north in Poland, in Slovakia and in the Czech Republic. And certainly we have been seeing images of border crossings full of people carrying suitcases, uh, fleeing to safety, given the extraordinary violence that we've seen uh, in Ukraine. Now, from a political perspective, Hungary's government has been clear that it stands in solidarity with the EU's approach, the joint approach to Russian aggression, to its military activities, that it will support the NATO alliance, uh, but also that it wants to protect Ukraine's security and territorial integrity and sovereignty. There had been some questions about where the government of Prime Minister Viktor Orban would fall, given his traditional closeness with Russian President Vladimir Putin. His approach to the issue of of refugees will be one to watch in the coming days, but certainly the first of those fleeing Ukraine starting to cross the border through Thursday uh, and into the weekend ahead. Lucy Hoff reporting from Eastern Europe.
Let's turn to India, which is looking for routes to evacuate its citizens after Ukraine closed its airspace. The country's external affairs ministry said in a statement that the Indian embassy in Ukraine has set up a 24-hour helpline for Indians who are stranded there. Meanwhile, New Delhi's also been calling for an immediate de-escalation of the crisis. Saroshi Mukherjee has more from the Indian capital. Thousands of Indians are waiting to fly back home but have gotten caught in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. On Thursday, an Air India flight flying to Ukraine to bring back Indians decided to return to Delhi after a notice was sent to all flights heading to the Eastern European country. India says it has been monitoring the situation closely and calls for sustained diplomatic dialogue between the concerned parties. But the Ukrainian ambassador, in an impassioned address to the Indian press on Thursday, asked for a strong voice from India to help prevent world tensions. statement of your Ministry of External Affairs was that India is closely following development of events. We are deeply dissatisfied with this position. What does it mean closely following or more closely? We are waiting. We are asking, we are pleading for the strong voice of India. Your Prime Minister can address Mr. Putin. He can address our President. Last week, India's Ministry of External Affairs said that India has consistently advocated for the need for peaceful settlement of disputes. Arindam Bhakti is the official spokesperson of the ministry. Our position has been clear and consistent. You would have seen our statement at the United Nations Security Council a few days ago. Uh, External Affairs Minister spoke at length uh, during his visit to Australia in response to, I think, a number of questions, and he was otherwise. In a sense, we have been supportive of an immediate de-escalation of tensions and a resolution of the issue through sustained diplomatic dialogue. Experts say India is walking a diplomatic tightrope and will soon feel the pressure to pick a side. Harsh Pant is an Indian professor of international relations. Uh, India is, uh, you know, is reacting very cautiously. India is not an- trying to antagonize uh, Russia. India is trying to, uh, you know, if India is dependent more than for more than sixty percent of its defense inventory on Russia, so it really can't afford to antagonize Russia. And also on regional security matters, uh, Russia and India share a very important relationship. So I think. Um, India's uh, what is at stake for India in this crisis is the fact that India has good relations with both the West and Russia, and uh, this crisis has come to a head now. And in, and this it's it's very likely that there will be demands made on India to choose a side. Prithusha Manitewari is an expert in international relations and works as an assistant professor in Delhi University. The invasion has begun. Uh, the security of Indian community in Ukraine is is of paramount concern. Uh, the embassy is already uh, looking at you know rescuing the uh, Indians, the students, and other uh, uh, civilians who are living in the country. Uh, and escalating tension between Russia and the West would also mean that India would also feel the pressure to pick a side. Uh, at the same time, India cannot abandon its strategic partnership with either the U.S. or Russia um, if if it wants to stay a neutral party uh, and it wants to continue the legacy of non-alignment movement as was the case during Cold War. Uh, today's geopolitical con- situation makes it even more, um, you know, incredibly hard, if not impossible. The Indian Embassy's latest advisory says that the mission is trying to identify a possible solution to the ongoing situation. 
Previously, the embassy stated that the situation is highly uncertain and that Indian citizens should try and keep calm. But with Ukraine's airspace closing down, India is now having to find other ways to evacuate around 20,000 citizens stranded in the country. Sriyoshi Mukherjee, New Delhi Meanwhile, Japan has also condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and on Thursday convened its National Security Council. The government says it intends to cooperate with other countries and is considering further sanctions. Phoebe Amoroso has been tracking developments from Tokyo. As we heard from the G7 meeting, Japan is closely coordinating its response along with its allies. Immediately after the news broke, Prime Minister Kishida convened the National Security Council. Japan announced this week that it would impose sanctions, including banning issuing visas and freezing the assets of Russian officials associated with the two pro-Moscow regions in eastern Ukraine. And they also said they would ban the issuance of Russian bonds in Japan. But in practice, Those measures would have little impact, and in fact, some have criticised them as really lacking teeth. They have floated the idea of banning exports of high-tech components, which would include semiconductors, for example, and also ban dealing with large Russian banks. Japan has been known to take a comparatively softer approach to Moscow due to an ongoing territorial dispute over a group of islands known as the Northern Territories. But one analyst I spoke to said that Japan could afford to be bolder, as discussions over these islands are effectively at a standstill, so effectively Japan does not have much to lose in pursuing a harder stance. Phoebe Amoroso with that update from Japan. Meanwhile, China has criticised the US for inflaming the Ukraine situation and says it opposes sanctions against Russia. It's also so far refusing to characterise Russia's attack on Ukraine as an invasion. At a foreign ministry press briefing in Beijing, spokesperson Hua Chunying added that China was closely monitoring the situation and calling all sides to exercise restraint. Our Beijing reporter Patrick Fock has more. Well, at a foreign ministry press briefing, Hua Chunying, as you say, stopped short of referring to it as an invasion, but at the same time appeared to be a little lost for words when it came to explaining what Beijing sees as going on exactly. She bridled at the characterization of this being an invasion by Western journalists and said this is perhaps the difference between China and Westerners and that China wouldn't go rushing into any conclusion. She was certainly frustrated by the question that one reporter made repeatedly asking whether she would call it an invasion and instead lashed out at the US for fueling the flame and asking how they wanted to put out that fire. Earlier, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is reported to have spoken with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, and had said that the Ukraine issue had a complex history and reiterated that China understood uh, Russia's legitimate concerns on security. But, you know, it's uh, uh, at the same time been advising Chinese citizens in Ukraine to stay at home and to display Chinese flags even when driving to different places. Uh, That's certainly an indication that Beijing is perfectly aware of the severity of the situation, but just doesn't want to openly acknowledge it. Patrick Fock in Beijing. Before we go, a final word from our US Bureau Chief here in Washington, D.C., Simon Marks. 
And so it begins, an entirely new chapter in the relationship between Russia and the West. A final end to any notion that there might be a way of working with Vladimir Putin, bringing him around to the Western way of thinking, getting him to adhere to a rules-based international system. As the Biden administration used to say, collaborating with Russia where we can, challenging Russia where we must. For decades, successive US presidents have hoped to find a way of avoiding exactly the scenario now playing out in Ukraine. And the Russian leader argues that for decades, the US, its NATO partners and its European allies have strung him along and he's no longer willing to play the game. As you've heard on the programme already, there's been a lot of talk in the last few hours of crippling sanctions, hitting the Kremlin where it hurts, freezing assets, grounding airlines, denying visas. But there are still things that aren't agreed. Will the Europeans go along with barring Russian banks from the SWIFT system? Currently, the support for that move isn't there. And it seems likely, based on the scale of the Russian advance, that the full panoply of sanctions won't come into force before Vladimir Putin's army sweeps towards Kiev and threatens to oust President Volodymyr Zelensky and replace him with a Russian puppet. President Biden does not want to go down in history as the US president who lost Ukraine. But with no appetite for armed conflict in Ukraine or with Russia, it's not clear this morning precisely how he plans to save it. Simon Marks there. Well, that's all we have time for today on World Report. Thanks for joining us this morning. We'll be back Monday morning from 6am with the very latest on the conflict in Ukraine. Up next on CNA 938, it's Asia First with Arnold and Yasmin. Have a great day and a great weekend ahead.